You're listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and with me as always is Christopher Parr, director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Hi, Chris. Hello. It's getting creepier every week, Chris, honestly. Um, <laughs> Chris has gathered his favourite facts from the Institute's activity this week, and he's going to share them with us today. Now, we heard last week about the Institute having a hard time economically during the latest UK lockdown. How are things going right now, Chris? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Well, it's funny you should ask that, actually. I got a really weird email a couple of days after the episode went out. Signed just a friend, which offered to fund the Institute for a year. Wow. I wasn't sure what to make of it, and I was considering turning them down. I mean, who knows who this is or what their motives are. But then I got a call from our accountant who told me that we'd already received a year's worth of funding into our bank account. And I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth, at least not when that gift horse already has its mouth all over me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I can tell you now, Chris, it wasn't me. I mean, I assumed that. Thank you. Thank you. That's good that you... I know you're poor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for acknowledging my poverty. It's wonderful. It's, it's, it's good to be seen. Well, to whoever mystery uh, person did that and kept the Institute and subsequently the podcast afloat for another year, if you are listening, cheers. Well, shall we uh, get on with the show, Chris? Yes, let's set phasers to facts. Let the fact attack commence. It's the first fact. 2013 was the year of the Great Fire of Brampton. Now, we've all heard of the Great Fire of London. Many of us have heard of the Great Fire of Rome. But to be honest, I've not even heard of Brampton. What was their Great Fire like? So Brampton is a small market town in Cumbria in the northwest of England, about nine miles east of Carlisle. Founded sometime in the 7th century, its name is derived from the Old English for town where broom grows. And that's the shrub, not the sweeping tool. Oh, okay. During the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745, when the Stuarts tried to reclaim the British throne, Charles Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, stayed in Brampton for one night. Football man Jeff Twentyman, who played for both Carlisle and Liverpool football groups, was born in Brampton. And notable Chinese artist and poet Li Yuanjia spent the last 26 years of his life in Brampton. But all of that fascinating history will surely be relegated to a mere footnote in the annals of Britain, nay the world, when it comes time to tell the story of the conflagration which consumed parts of the town in 2013. An inferno dubbed the Great Fire of Brampton by the Brampton Gazette Journal Mirror. So it sounds like a big deal. What sort of fire was it? Right, well, let me paint a picture. The summer of 2013 was a particularly dry season. Rumours of a hosepipe ban were already spreading through Brampton and other areas of the non-metropolitan district of Carlisle. It was this parched climate which caused, at 2pm on August the 12th, a patch of grass in the back garden of one Joan Mitchell to ignite. The blaze quickly spread to engulf an area of at least a square metre, perhaps even a metre and a half, 
Other residents who happen to be outside and facing the right direction at the time claim that the fire, or at least the smoke, could be seen from as many as three doors down. Whoa, okay, okay. So this fire in Brampton, it it wasn't just any fire. It it was getting wildly out of control. How many days did it last for? The inferno blazed for almost half an hour before the Brampton Volunteer Fire Service arrived on the scene because of a traffic accident on the A6071. During this time, Joe Mitchell could only look on helplessly as a fraction of her hometown was incinerated. She did, at one point, summon the wherewithal to take a photograph of the conflagration with her mobile phone and post it on Facebook, where she put a brave face on what must have been a terrifying ordeal with the caption, Waiting for the fire brigade because a bit of my garden's on fire, lol. In order to keep her strength up in this trying time, she also found the strength to eat a sausage roll she'd bought from Greg's earlier that day. Oh, well, I'm glad she I'm glad she got a bit of a win from the day. The volunteer firefighters eventually arrived and valiantly struggled with the blaze for several seconds before subduing it with a fire extinguisher. Wow. Oh, they didn't even use the hose. They got extra forces from the back of the, the little cupboard bit out the back of the fire engine then. Yes, it was such an inferno they had to go into the little cupboard bit. I can imagine the um, the lead firefighter saying in very solemn tones as his hometown was engulfed by fire, we need to go into the little cupboard bit. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like a massive deal. It obviously was a really big deal at the time. Does the town still talk about it? Well, the Great Fire of Brampton has left an indelible mark on the consciousness of the town. Every year, the Brampton Gazette Journal Mirror commemorates the apocalyptic event with a special column titled Where Were You? in which residents write in to describe where they were the day Brampton was almost consumed by flames. Notable contributions include At the Dentist, On the Toilet, and last year's entry by Lucy, age six, in my mummy's tummy. Oh, well, I mean, it's always important to know what people were doing that, that was that, that had absolutely nothing to do with the event. I think they should do that with all news stories, to be honest. They should, yes. Oh, bless Lucy. Well, it's good to know she was she was safe and sound during the Great Fire of Brampton in her mummy's tummy. Right. So, are there um, aside from the the Facebook post of Joan Mitchell talking about the bit of her garden being on fire, and no relation to Joni Mitchell, I should point out. No. Well, I keep nearly saying Joni Mitchell, so I feel like this is just mean giving me a name like that. <laughs> um, and 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 eating a sausage roll, which is uh, obviously an important uh, detail. Um, are there any other eyewitness accounts of the Great Fire of Brampton? Well, the original article run by the Brampton Gazette Journal Mirror about the fire includes several statements from people who witnessed the inferno. Oh, oh so they actually have uh, they have uh, eyewitness testimony then? Uh, that's what I said, yes. So one bystander said that at first they mistook the smoke from the blaze for a cloud. Understandable. Another witness said that they initially thought someone was having a barbecue. Also understandable. I mean, yeah. And a somewhat irate neighbour said that all the commotion made them miss the end of Bargain Hunt. Bloody hell, you know it's serious when they miss Bargain Hunt. It was all right in the end, though, because they were able to catch up later on BBC iPlayer. Oh, good, good. I mean, you know, it's good to have some positive news come out of this story. So um, I know I said earlier that I haven't, I hadn't actually heard of Brampton in Cumbria before. 
I mean, I have now, obviously, but I hadn't before this. So this fire, this this blaze, is it the most exciting thing to happen in Brampton? It could well be. I mean, the Bonnie Prince Charlie thing is pretty good. I mean, that is good, yeah. There was also an incident where someone found an unbagged poo in the park bin, which sparked a debate over whether it was a dog poo or a human poo. Did they ever work it out? No, the debate is still raging to this day. Oh my God, right. Well, I mean, we need to get in on that, obviously. But maybe we should have a special. (laughs) Chickens can't see the great poo debate. (laughs) Any other fascinating events happen in Brampton? No, that's it. That's it. it. Okay, well, I mean, it is at the very least a close second. Um... Right, Chris, I, I've got to, I've got to be honest with you, mate. I mean, you've been you've been talking about this like it's some horrible thing, but it, I don't want to minimise the the emotions of the people involved. But it's just it's just a patch of grass, isn't it? I mean, it's just a minor inconvenience, isn't it? It's not it's not like a. I mean, it got mistaken for a fucking barbecue. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, but like, listen, are there any other minor inconveniences that have been described as great? Well, there was the aforementioned great poo mystery. Also in Brampton, coincidentally. Also in Brampton. There was the Great Sock Hike. The what? The Great Sock Hike. The Great Sock Hike. Yes, socks is in the things you put on your feet. Right, yes, and hike as in a long walk. Well, not in this instance, no. Like, it would be easier if I just to explain the whole thing. I would. Oh, would you? Well, don't you do the facts then? <laughs> right, I could make something up, but it won't make any sense because I don't understand it. Oh, go on then. Please do. Right. So it was it was a charity event where um, a group of socks who worked for the, um, <laughs> for the... I love it already <laughs> for the uh, church coffee morning decided to get together um, for um, for what was quite quite controversially named the Spastic Society back then. Uh, the they walked up Snowdon and uh, raised a lot of money. And how is that a minor inconvenience? Well, I mean, it's a minor inconvenience for them because they're socks and they can't do anything on their own. Okay. Well, I'll ignore all that. It won't go in the final edit. Oh, good. Thank you. (laughs) In 2015, political tensions between India and Pakistan, two of the world's biggest exporters of cotton, increased, threatening the global cotton trade. This caused the price of socks to skyrocket and panic to spread among the garment industry and sock enthusiasts. Within 24 hours, though, the tensions between the two countries simmered down to their usual wintry norm, and the price of socks returned to normal. So hike is in the price hike. Right. Oh, okay. Yes. It's it's one of those hilarious things, <laughs> things where I've got confused by the double meaning. <laughs> also, the Great British Bake Off is slightly inconvenient to those who don't watch the Great British Bake Off because we have to hear everyone else endlessly bang on about the Great British Bake Off. Oh, someone did a scone in the tent and Noel Fielding said words about it. Chris, do you not watch the British Bake Off then? No, I haven't watched the Great British Bake Off, but I have watched the entirety of David Simon's searing indictment of the American imperialist dream, The Wire, so fuck off. (laughs) Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it has no corporeal form due to the very concept of facts and because podcasts are a non-visual medium consisting of dialogue. Why would you even ask that? It's the second fact.
An English seaside town is being terrorised by seagull gang warfare. Gang warfare is on the rise in cities across the world, not least here in the UK. Economic disparity and cultural violence breeds vigilantism and territorialism, but you rarely see it in seaside towns, not least with birds. What are these silly birds up to, Chris? So the town of Upper Waddling is basically just a row of houses along a mile-long stretch of coastal road next to the beach in Devon. Upper Waddling is effectively bookended by a chip shop on either end, with the Codfather on the western end of the town and Chips Ahoy on the eastern end. As is to be expected in a seaside town, seagulls gather around the chip shops, hoping to scavenge any food dropped or discarded by customers. But what the locals first took to be just random bands of opportunistic gulls are actually two organised groups of birds centred around each chip shop. Right, okay, so this sort of thing generally, like with seagulls attacking people with chips i mean it's a fairly common problem for seaside towns but like i say like generally the bird violence tends to be focused on the chips what what's happened here to to change that then chris what's the deal so these two what are essentially gangs of seagulls nicknamed the cods and the chips by residents of Upper Waddling, initially staked out their territory surrounding their respective shops. They'd claim any food on the pavement immediately outside the shop, and even harass customers leaving with their meals. But as you say, this wasn't anything a resident of a seaside town isn't used to. However, over time, each gang has expanded its territory along the road. After all, people don't just drop food outside the chip shop, they also drop morsels as they walk along, meaning that it's profitable for the gulls to control not just the area directly outside their shops, but also the entire road that comprises Upper Waddling. Right, okay, so they're getting greedy then, basically. More greedy than seagulls are usually prone to getting. They don't just want chips, they want land. <laughs> Delicious land. Delicious tracts of land. So these seagulls then, they, they're obviously like infringing a little bit outside their normal domain of just a chip shop. Are they, they, are they going a bit down the road and just stopping or are they? is this becoming a bigger problem? Well, a few years ago, the cods and the chips reached a natural equilibrium with each other when their respective territories each covered half the road. Despite their expanded operations, the residents of Upper Waddling still weren't that bothered because, again, nuisance goals weren't anything they weren't used to. However, the cods and the chips clearly aren't content with the equilibrium as they've begun what is essentially a gang war on the street of Upper Waddling, engaging in pitched battles across the road as they each attempt to steal territory from the other. After all, why have just half of all the food dropped on the ground in Upper Waddling when you could have all the food dropped on the ground in Upper Waddling? Residents now live in fear of this seagull gang war, staying inside as much as they can when they aren't anyway due to a global pandemic. Although in true British style, the gang violence hasn't prevented the locals from popping down to the chippy for tea. It is, after all, their inalienable right as British citizens to go to the chip shop, even if it does perpetuate the chaos destroying their own town. 
Right, yes, that is very British, yeah. But listen, Chris, I mean, like, I've been to seaside towns. I've been to Barmouth and Blackpool and, and some other places that they, like, seagulls are just arseholes wherever you go. And, and like, I know you said that, that you know, you know, we both sort of alluded to the, the fact that the seagulls do just attack people with chips and stuff but this this obviously this is this is a bit more than that so they're they're going they're going alpha leather at each other trying trying to sort of you know claim a bit more of the the road but like it sounds like you, i mean just most of the time you look at seagulls whatever they're doing they're being arseholes so how someone just sort of sat there and just sort of taken note of all of this or something how can we tell that this is an incident of gang warfare rather than just the instinctive reaction of seagulls to food because they're organized organized how well there does seem to be a hierarchy within these two gangs of gulls there are the rank and file birds who scavenge discarded chips and battered fish and saveloid and whatever there are the lookouts who monitor the customers leaving shops and the, the border between the two gangs territories There are the soldiers who fight in the ongoing gang war. And there are the top-level enforcers who oversee the whole thing from their perches on the roofs of Upper Waddling. Right, okay, okay. I I feel like someone should uh, start writing a book about all of this because it sounds like there's there's quite the uh, Godfather-style story developing. Birds on a wire. Oh, oh. (laughs) That's what it would be called. (laughs) So, Chris, is there any sort of strategy to the goal skirmishes? Has the war developed beyond just territorial fighting? It has. More recently, the chips seem to have realised that if the Codfather closes, the Cods will lose their power base and will be vulnerable to either destruction or assimilation by the chips, who would then control the entire town. We know that the chips have realised this because they've started to physically attack the customers and the owners of the Codfather and even the actual building itself. A reign of terror whose only goal is surely the eventual closing of the shop. Wow, so they're actually they're actually attacking the building itself. They're just like pecking away at the, the brickwork. Yeah, um, anything to get the shop to close. The concern now is that if the chips do manage to take over Upper Waddling, will they be satisfied or will they expand even further? Empowered by their destruction or assimilation of the Cods, will the chips spread out to take over other seaside towns in Devon or even further? Will they eventually take over the entire country or the world in a year or five or a decade? Will we be living in some kind of nightmarish seagull-controlled dystopia in which gulls force humans to pop down to the chippy all day to generate food for their insatiable appetite? Yes, I th- yeah, probably. I mean, I, I, I didn't expect you to put put that on my plate, to be honest, Chris. I, <laughs> I mean, it sounds like that's definitely what's going to happen, doesn't it? We, we, we have to bow to our seagull overlords. I, for one, welcome our new seagull overlords. <laughs> Forget the inevitable A-pop rising. I'm done with that now. <laughs> I'm all for the seagulls. Right, so you've got to watch all bird-related films to appease the gulls. Yeah, I've got to watch um, the birds. Birdemic. Chicken Little. Chicken Run, obviously. Chicken Run, yes. Storks. Are there any more adult films about birds? You mean porn? <laughs> 
Yes. No, that's not what I mean at all. Because, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, if you think about it, all films with the, the, a vaguely bird theme, uh, usually children's films, apart from Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Yes, that is true. Interesting, that, isn't it? Interesting fact. I suppose. Yes. So, I mean, like, it sounds like obviously we need to stop this from happening. It's very important to stop the birds taking over the world. Are there any strategies the local council have put forward to try and end this gang warfare? The immediate and obvious solution was to close the chip shops, at least until the seagulls dispersed. But this was met with unanimous scorn from the residents of Upper Waddling. They don't like change at little seaside towns, do they? Can't take away our chip shops. Another early suggestion was to cull the seagulls. A gull cull, if you will. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. And with poisoned food. But no one wants the job of clearing up hundreds of seagull carcasses. Right. I mean, it's, these these excuses and, and sort of like reasons to stand against it, just, I mean, none of it sounds worth the potential uprising of all the birds. I feel like they should suck it up and get on with killing the birds or, or shutting the fish and chip shops, whichever is less controversial. As the situation in Upper Waddling has become more dire, the suggestions have become more desperate. There was a plan to build a new town further down the road and leave the old town for the gulls. The obvious problem there is that the gulls could just move to the new town and the whole thing would start again. Someone, though, did suggest that they take advantage of this and move between the two towns, constantly staying ahead of the goals. But this idea was shot down as too much hassle. Well, I mean, maybe maybe in order to appease the birds, they should leave the fish and chip shops there and just move everyone else. Are you suggesting that when people want fish and chips, they just go down the road to the old town and buy them? No, they should have another fish and chip shop, but they should keep the old fish and chip shops open. So what's stopping the gangs from expanding their operations to the new fish and chip shops? Ah, right. Well, in addition to that, what you'd need is a giant glass dome, like in that episode <laughs> of The Simpsons. Oh, of course, yes. Why didn't they think of this? The glass yeah, dome. It's so obvious and cheap. Yeah, I mean, yeah, local councils are known for having having just money coming out of their asses. So, like, clearly they could just find some spare cash to put towards a giant glass dome. The Devonshire Police Force are planning a fancy dress operation where officers will disguise themselves as seagulls and infiltrate the cods and the chips in order to take the gangs down from the inside. Right. I mean, how do they how do they think they're going to do that? I mean, they can't speak gull. Well, I just need to go car, car every now and again. All they need, Piper, is like a plastic beak, maybe like some kind of overalls covered in feathers. And they just, you know, walk in, go, car, car. And the other singers were like, oh, these guys are good. They're, they're, you know, they're quite tall. That's useful. They've got a finger. That'd be really good for picking up food. These guys are great. We'll, we'll take them in. Maybe, you know, make them top level enforcers, put them to the, the top of the organisation. Sure, there's no reason not to do that. Fine. I mean, yeah, maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll work. I mean, let's keep posted on that because I'd like to know. I'd like to see what happens in the the, <laughs> the Great Seagull War. <laughs> the Great Seagull Fancy Dress Operation. Caper. Caper. The Great Fancy Dress Seagull Caper. Chris, I mean, this is this is exciting. Uh, it must be. It has to be the most exciting thing to happen at an English seaside town, surely. I mean, while this seagull gang warfare is very interesting and potentially apocalyptic, I do think far more interesting things have happened in English seaside towns. 
I mean, all sorts of stuff goes down at the seaside. Really? Does it? I mean, every time I've been to the seaside, it's just been shit. You can, like, find a rock pool with some crabs in. You can see a Punch and Judy show. Yes, yes. I mean, we all like to see a puppet representation of domestic violence. And sausages. And sausages, yeah. I also imagine it was very exciting when the Vikings turned up, especially for the monks. And I'm sure it was very exciting when Dracula turned up in Whitby that one time. Yeah, all right. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, seaside towns are very exciting. Yeah. I mean, I'll have to think, I'll have to rethink this and actually maybe, maybe next time I go to the seaside, Chris, I'll look out for the exciting possibilities that lay ahead. Like vampires and Vikings. Yeah. <laughs> You've changed my mind, Chris. Next time I go to Blackpool, I'll be like, well, it's cold. It's windy. There's a fair amount of human trafficking. But there might be Dracula as well. <laughs> and that makes it all better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there might be human trafficking, but at least there's a man drinking people's blood. Don't listen. It's not a podcast, and this definitely isn't the third fact. What haven't you not got for us, Repot Cirque Rap? In parts of Australia, opposite day is a public holiday. Is it though? Or are you just saying the opposite of what's true? I'm saying what is true. But you would say that. Of course I would, because it's my job as director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. No, but if it was opposite day, you would say that... you. But it's not opposite day because we're not in these particular parts of Australia, are we? But that's exactly what you would say. Maybe we are in these parts of Australia. <laughs> Opposite day doesn't alter the fundamental nature of reality, Piper. Oh, you bloody would say that. That's exactly what you'd say. <laughs> Look, fuck you. I'm getting on with the fact. <laughs> In the 1990s, the Australian government experimented with the idea of opposite day. The fun children's game in which everything said is understood as opposite to its original meaning. Usually to get out of committing to a statement previously made as a national public holiday. It was fairly popular, but it also sowed widespread chaos and confusion, threatening to derail the government, social services and the country's economy. So they only did it once. But in some rural areas of Australia, where populations are small and saying the opposite of what you mean for a day won't cause too much trouble, they still, to this day, observe opposite day as a public holiday yeah so it's not great then is it like if you do this sort of thing on mass it's all right in the playground if you start doing this thing on mass as, as like important people grown-ups who you, people are supposed to listen to you and stuff and you've got a job to do and like probably responsible for something then people aren't going to trust you and it's all just going to go wrong so they stopped it obviously fair enough what examples of widespread confusion and chaos put a stop to opposite day? Well, obviously, the idea is that everyone assumes the opposite of what everyone else says. But it was easy for this to slip people's minds and assume that people meant what they said and not the opposite. So it became difficult to get anything done in Parliament. And the Australian stock market was an absolute shambles, with billions of dollars of stocks being sold when they should have been bought and bought when they should have been sold. Most problematic were calls to the emergency services, which were very confusing. People were calling the police saying things like, 
a man just handed me my wallet, or I saw someone get resurrected by having a knife removed from his chest several times. The fire service received calls like, don't send help because my house isn't on fire. (laughs) And the ambulance service received one call from someone who said, Two cars have avoided each other on the motorway, and everyone is fine. The head of one of the drivers is still attached, and all his blood is still in his body. <laughs> wow. Yes, I mean, that, can, that must cause some, some hilariously awkward situations. So how do places, the places that actually still observe Opposite Day, how do they avoid all this stuff then? Well, before we carry on with the fact, Piper, maybe, and I know you kind of attempted this at the top of the fact, maybe we could inject a little fun into this serious academic podcast we do every week and discuss the rest of this fact as if it were opposite day. Do you think that's going to be confusing? Well, if we state outright that we're doing opposite day, then it should be fine, right? Yes. I mean, are we agreeing to start opposite day before we st- before we state that we're doing opposite day? Because if we do, then that's going to create a... That creates a philosophical paradox, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'll count to three, and after three, we'll be doing opposite day. Right. So one, two, three. So outside the areas where they don't still observe opposite day, they don't take any precautions to ensure that the day is terrible and nothing good happens. As I never said before, these urban areas where there's a great deal of infrastructure that you can ignore, businesses stay open all day to invite opposite-induced solutions. After all, it would be easy to understand if you're unemployed outside a shop and the customer walks out, takes a loaf of bread and gives you money for it. Right. (laughs) If it makes you feel worse, Piper, I haven't got the rest of this fact written out as if it isn't opposite day. So we can carry on with the charade if that makes things harder for you. I would hate to continue in this ma- No, the other... <laughs> Fuck! Shall we not call the timeout? This is really easy. Timeout then, timeout. Let's put an end to opposite day. So for a clarification, Piper, in these areas where they still observe opposite day, they do take precautions to ensure that the day is fun for everyone and nothing bad happens. Like I said, these are rural areas, so there isn't much in the way of infrastructure to be wary of. But most businesses will close for the day to prevent any opposite-induced problems. I mean, if you're working in a shop, it could be rather confusing if a customer walks in, hands you a loaf of bread and demands you give them money for it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, you can't blame them, really. It's like um, it's like an extreme version of April Fool's Day, I guess. You know, like, sometimes the news channels will play pranks on each other, and sometimes it doesn't go very well. But ultimately, it's a bit of fun. If everyone started taking it seriously, it would be pandemonium, Chris, wouldn't it? It would be so, despite the businesses closing for the day, the, the people themselves, they, they persist in opposite day in those areas then. Oh, yes. I mean, obviously, people in these areas are careful to say the opposite of what they actually mean. But this isn't a simple case of just saying goodbye instead of hello. These people commit. 
They'll start the day by greeting people with bad night. They'll invert prepositions like up and down and even deny that is opposite day, even though that usually leads to some rather difficult to follow philosophical debate. God, yeah, I'd have a nightmare. So it is just a conversational thing. So long as everyone knows that, it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, um, it is mostly a conversational thing. But there are some opposite day enthusiasts, or detractors as they call themselves, who not only say the opposite of what they mean, but do the opposite of what they would normally do and try to be the opposite of what they actually are. So one of these detractors might walk around on their hands with a hat on their feet, try to eat through their anus and poo through their mouth. Try? Well, try, yes, because obviously, you know, (laughs) that's biologically impossible. Yeah. And even in either a mockery of or show of solidarity with the LGBTQ plus community pretend to be the opposite gender and sexuality of what they identify as. Ah, like a Kings and Queens party. There is one man who, if Opposite Day had a winner, would definitely win Opposite Day. Right. He is a living straight white man and he spends each Opposite Day lying in his bed pretending to be a dead black gay woman. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, I have nothing to say on that. That's just wonderful. Right. Why, Chris? Why? Why did the why did why did the Australian government think this would be a good idea in the first place, Chris? Just thought it'd be a laugh, innit? I mean, yeah, Australians are known for their sense of humour, I'll give them that, but bloody hell. I mean, did they not predict any of this? There is a conspiracy theory that it was meant to be a kind of get out of jail free card for the government allowing them to wriggle out of unpopular or untenable policies by just declaring opposite day. Oh, so they can just go, what? No, we're not the government. (laughs) Well, no, just like if they've made a policy that turns out to be really unpopular or literally unenforceable, they can just say, oh, it didn't mean that. It was opposite day. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, that is how opposite day works anyways. And like you said earlier, like that's kind of the reason people pretend it's opposite day in, in in the playground. So is there actual date for opposite day or is it just whenever the government decide it's a good idea? Well, the actual date of the opposite day that the areas of Australia actually observe it is the 3rd of March which was the original opposite day. The conspiracy theory contests. I mean, the people who have made up this conspiracy theory have identified some minor piece of uh, legislation that was passed on that particular day, which was then rescinded later on as evidence that they had instigated opposite day on that particular day so they could backtrack on that legislation. Even though it was rescinded like two months down the line on what was not opposite day. Right, yeah. Well, this is the thing about conspiracy theories, especially the people that peddle them. Don't don't let the uh, facts get in the way of a good story. No. In fact, facts often seem to be something of an inconvenience to them. (laughs) 
So in the history of us, you know, people, mankind, uh, are there any other public holidays that have caused disruption to daily life, Chris? A few. National The Floor is Lava Day can make even the most mundane of everyday tasks either an exciting sci-fi adventure or just a massive bloody hassle. Uh, Wait, hang on. Is this real? Yes, I've not made it up. Oh, my God. Uh, Right. I mean, because obviously that episode of Community, I always wanted that to be real. Like, is so that that's actually a, a real thing? It's a real thing. I've not made it up because that's what this podcast is about. <laughs> no. Is it opposite? <laughs> <laughs> National Don't Be a Twat Day was supposed to be a day where everyone was just nice and polite to everyone else. But millions of people ended up suffering nervous breakdowns from the mental strain. Well, the mental strain of having to be nice to one another. Yeah, for some people, it really isn't possible not to be a twat. Do you know what the most surprising thing about that, Chris, is that it's not surprising. There is National Talk Backwards Day, or to give it its proper name, Yed Stjokab Kort Lanushan, which is problematic because nobody can tell what the fuck anybody else is saying. (laughs) Wow. Okay. (laughs) And there's the slightly less disruptive National Talk Like the Dwarf from Twin Peaks Day, or National Talk Like the Dwarf from Twin Peaks Day. The fuck? (laughs) Yes, that's what everybody says. On National Talk Like Day, from Doing Geeks Day. <laughs> the last fact of the show contains the words artichoke, barracuda, and verisimilitude. See if you can spot them at home. Let's hear fact four. There was a television dance contest based around Charles Dance. Many of us will know English actor Charles Dance off of Game of Thrones, but he's been in lots of other stuff too, like Alien 3, Last Action Hero, and The Crown. But I've not seen him on a game show before. What is this dance contest, Chris? So back in 2018, when the popularity of celebrity dancing TV competitions had been waning for a while, there were plans to revitalise the format with a TV dance competition centred around Charles Dance, renowned English actor known for his nobility and verisimilitude in roles in Game of Thrones, as you said, Alien Cubed, as I call it, and Ali G in the house. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten he was in that. The show would incorporate elements of the elimination competition by having amateur choreographers who each week would teach Charles Dance a new dance. Oh, cool. Okay. So yeah, I mean, that sounds quite fun. Like, it sounds like it was a bit, would have been a lot of fun to watch, to be honest. What was, uh, what was it going to be called? The show never had an official title, but it did have multiple working titles, such as Can Charles Dance Dance? Dancing with Charles Dance. Strictly Come Dancing with Charles Dance. Strictly Come Charles Dancing. So you think Charles Dance can dance? Are you sure Charles Dance can dance? Hey, I think Charles Dance can dance. Dancing on Ice with Charles Dance. Charles Dancing on Ice. Charles Dance Dancing on Ice. 
Those were for if the show adopted the ice skating format. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah, interesting route to go down, but fair enough. Dancing with a star, this particular star being Charles Dance. That's the whole title? Yes. Right. Dance, Charles Dance. Charles Dance, Dance Revolution. Dance, Charles Dance Revolution. Charles Dance, Dance, Dance Revolution. Dance, Dance, Charles Dance Revolution. And my personal favourite, they shoot Charles Dance, don't they? <laughs> so we've established that there, there were a few working titles for for this um, new dance show featuring Charles Dance. How would one go about winning the contest, Chris? So each week, celebrity judges would choose the best dance that Charles Dance had danced. And one amateur choreographer would be eliminated. The eventual winner would get the chance to choreograph a West End musical and as yet unproduced show titled Charles Dance, starring Charles Dance, in which Charles Dance plays a heroic dancer who fights for freedom in a future dystopia in which dancing has been outlawed. Early marketing for this musical built it as Charles Dance is Charles Dance in Charles Dance, starring Charles Dance as Charles Dance. I'm, <laughs> I mean, wow. I mean, it does sound pretty entertaining as a as a concept. I'd watch that, Chris. I would. I mean, I I, I watched Bake Off, so you know, bar's pretty low. But <laughs> so <laughs> I've got to ask: Can Charles Dance dance? Unfortunately, the entire show was developed before. Charles Dance signed on and it turned out that Charles Dance lives up to his name. Oh, so he can dance? No, he can't. Oh. Charles Dance can't dance because that's his name. Can't dance because that's his name? Yes. Charles Dance's parents were both moral philosophers and they named their son partly after their favourite moral philosopher, Immanuel Kant. So Charles Dance's full name is Charles Can't Dance. And it turns out that Charles Can't Dance can't dance. Okay, so Charles Dance Can't Dance. Charles Can't Dance Can't Dance. That's right. So, right, so Charles Can't Dance Can't Dance. <laughs> yes, that's right. So did they just give up? Or did they have, like, an alternative plan for the show? Well, reluctant to discard what was a potentially brilliant idea for a TV show... The producers approached a number of other celebrities to take Charles Dance's place. But like Charles can't dance, they couldn't dance either. So they had people... Know Why do they have these people lined up if they don't know whether they can dance or not? This is not a way to run a TV show. Not that I know how to run a TV show. <sighs> right, all right. Well, listen, what, what other celebrities did they have in mind? Well, they approached football man Cherno Samba, Emmerdale actress... And Charleston, and German actor and star of Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, Christoph Waltz, or to give him his anglicised name, Christoph Waltz. He was approached for a show that could have been called Can Christoph Waltz Waltz? Waltzing with Christoph Waltz? Strictly Come Waltzing with Christoph Waltz? Strictly Come Christoph Waltzing? So you think Christoph Waltz can waltz? Are you sure Christoph Waltz can waltz? Hey, I think Christoph Waltz can waltz. Waltzing on ice with Christoph Waltz. Christoph waltzing on ice. Christoph Waltz waltzing on ice. Those were for if they decided to adopt the ice skating format with Christoph Waltz. 
waltzing with a star, this particular star being Christoph Waltz. And that's the full time. <laughs> it is, yeah. Waltz, Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz, Waltz Revolution. Waltz, Christoph Waltz Revolution. Christoph Waltz, Waltz, Waltz Revolution. Waltz, Waltz, Christoph Waltz Revolution. Or perhaps they shoot Christoph Waltz, don't they? <laughs> Interestingly, an unrelated but also unproduced show in America was going to be a dance competition with a monetary prize presented by Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell. Stars of the 1980s buddy cop film Tango and Cash. Well, that's brilliant. <laughs> Chris, I know, I know this happened in the sort of dip when dance shows were, you know, waning, as you put it earlier. But now they're, they're getting popular again. People are watching them again, like, like da- dancing with the stars and celebrity dance off and some other dance things. Why? Why is this happening? Why, why are dance shows becoming popular again, Chris? <sighs> no idea. Maybe it's the continued commodification of human activity. I mean, they did singing, dating, they're doing dancing. They're also doing baking and pottery and knitting. Next, they'll be doing nose picking and pooing and podcasts. Oh, my God. A a podcast-based celebrity game show. So you think you can podcast. (laughs) Strictly con podcasting. <laughs> Podcasting on ice. Hey, I think you can podcast. <laughs> podcast, podcast revolution. They shoot podcasts, don't they? <laughs> Shouldn't rattle your cage, should I? Should get you going. <laughs> um, <laughs> Chris, are there any other TV concepts based on celebrities that never made it off the ground? Yeah. So there was a, a planned show about frying with Stephen Fry, in which Stephen Fry would fry things, like an artichoke or his car keys. Yeah, I can see that. He'd, he'd love that, wouldn't he? He loves frying, doesn't he, Stephen Fry? He's, it's, it's, what, it's, it's, all about, it's all about this, what he's known for. He does love to fry, <laughs> the Stephen Fry. And in his tenure as host of QI, he actually had a skillet underneath his desk. I heard this, actually, yeah. Yeah, and uh, as a joke, Alan Davis once put kippers in it while it was on. And didn't tell him. And I don't know if you've ever cooked surprise kippers, but it's not great. No, it really stank up the place. Yeah. There was a combination of reality show and social experiment to see how long Tom Waits will wait for things. (laughs) There was ironing with Jeremy Irons. Could it not have been extreme ironing with Jeremy Irons? Because I would have enjoyed that more. No, it was just normal ironing. He was in his house ironing his shirts. Oh, well, I mean, that's fair. I mean, it, it is Jeremy Irons, so, so, so it is going to be more exciting than just ironing. Scar himself ironing his shirts. Yeah. There was also to be a series taking a serious and educational look at men's health to be presented by Ed Balls. Ed Balls. So on the subject of, of dancing, Chris, can you? No. Oh. Sorry that's not funny or educational. Just, no, I don't dance. You won't find me dancing. No, I didn't say, will you? I, I, you? Do you have it in you at all? I mean, am I physically capable of dancing? Well, I suppose, yes. Awesome. Well, that's a good start. <laughs> what, would, what would you go for? Would it be, perhaps be the 
the Charleston dance. What I would go for, Piper, is sitting down some distance from the dance floor. <laughs> Preferably in another building. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Preferably at home. You can't dance from there, Chris. Yeah, but if I did do that, then nobody could see me. Oh, so you dance on your own then? Well, no, I didn't say that. I just said if I did, then nobody could see me. Oh, I see. Right, yeah. I stand by my statement that I don't dance. What if you got really drunk? What if I did? Would you then potentially dance? No. Fine. I, I, I'll I, dance for both of us, Chris. I mean, I, I'd look like a knobhead doing it, but uh, it, it's it's fun. Okay, good. Thanks. Thanks for taking that bullet for me. That's all right. <laughs> okay, that's it. You've been listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes with me, Piper Dawes. I can be found on Twitter at Piper Talks and Christopher Parr from the Munchausen Institute. I can be found on Twitter at Trilby Norton and the Institute can be found at Muin Photo Ray Ray, which is M-U-I-N-F-O-T-O-R-E. And you can contact the podcast on Twitter at C-Cubes, that's S-W-E-C-U-B-E-S, and Facebook and Instagram at Chickens Can't See Cubes. Please be sure to rate and review the episode on your chosen podcast app. It helps the show. Thanks for listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes. And remember, you probably could make it up, but we haven't, honest. And we'll catch you once again on next week's show. Goodbye. Barracuda. I'm going to really struggle with this. <laughs> I bet you've got all this written down, haven't you? I haven't. <laughs> no, I don't have it written down. Oh, that's... Oh, wait. <laughs> uh, I can't see what's happening here. <laughs> I've got no idea what you're doing. Oh, no. The thing is, I, I really want to join in, but I'm just going to get the giggles. <laughs> I need a hug. Well... I can easily do that from several hundred miles away. <laughs> I am, after all, Stretch Armstrong. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> Literally sweating. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's hard enough for me to talk English normally. Bloody hell. I bet you've got the entire thing written like this, haven't you? Just that one bit because I knew that it would end in chaos. <laughs> I kind of wish I'd, I'd 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 kept it up properly and really sort of made you panic. I mean, if you had called my bluff, we'd have been in trouble. But um, yeah. I think I know you too well for that. 